I encourage you to get a Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts, starting with chapter 2 in just a moment. We want to continue a study we've been making of questions in the Bible. Questions have different purposes. They accomplish different things. Jesus both asked and answered questions. And we've had four such studies. In the first two, we talked about Jesus asked questions. We won't go back through those, but we looked in the first lesson at a series of eight questions. Questions like the one, what do you more than others? Or a question like, what do you want me to do for you? And then in the second lesson, we looked at a series of another eight questions. Do you see anything is one of those questions and oh, what is that to you? Or do you want to be made well? We followed that with two more lessons on Jesus, questions that Jesus answered. And we looked at a series of 16 questions, to eight in the first lesson and then eight in the second. Let's continue that study by looking at questions in the book of Acts. There are a number of questions in the book of Acts that are very practical for us, and we'll follow the same format. We'll look at what the question was by the context. How does it fit in that context? What answer, if any? Some questions weren't answered. And then what application can we make of that? So let's get our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2 as the beginning point. We'll work through the book of Acts, picking out some of the questions, not even half of the questions that are asked in the book. Here's the first. Let's go to Acts 2 and in verse 12. The question is, whatever could this mean? Whatever could this mean? That's a good question. What is the context in which that's set? Whatever could this mean is the question. The context is, this is on the day of Pentecost, according to verse 1. This is a familiar text to us, so we can quickly notice the context. The apostles spoke in tongues, beginning at verse 2 on the day of Pentecost, when it fully came. Verse 2 said, there suddenly appeared upon each of them, that is the apostles, divided tongues like as a fire, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The context will define that speaking in tongues means they spoke in a language, an intelligible language, that they had not studied or learned, but they miraculously could speak in that language. The apostles were doing that. It, verse 5 tells us that there were people gathered from every nation under heaven who spoke different languages. Beginning at verse 6, the people marveled that these men being Galileans could speak in their language. So notice beginning at verse, verse 6. There was the sound that occurred and the multitude were together and were confused because every word, everyone heard him, them speak in his own language. They were amazed, verse 7, and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? They are marveling at that. Now, verse 12 is our question. So they asked the question, as they were perplexed and amazed, they said, whatever could this mean? Suddenly they've come to the day of Pentecost. They've never seen this at a Pentecost before. And suddenly the apostles are all standing up speaking in various tongues. And they're amazed. These men are Galileans speaking in our language. Whatever could this mean? Now let's talk about the answer that was given to that. The answer was that according to verse, verse 14 beginning, that this is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 16. This is the fulfillment of Joel 2. 
Here's the answer to the question. This is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. What had Joel prophesied? That in the last days God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Now without reading all of that prophecy, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 shows that the Spirit would be involved in revelation, the Spirit would be involved in confirmation of that revelation, and ultimately bring, verse 21, salvation to mankind. So you want to know whatever could this mean? What this means is, this is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Verses 17, 18, and 19 simply is demonstrating from the quotation from Joel 2 that these men are speaking by the power of God. This is the Holy Spirit enabling them to speak in other tongues. So here's what that meant. That meant that what these men were preaching is the truth. Your question is, whatever could this mean? These men are speaking in other tongues. What what could this mean? What this means is that what they're about to preach and what they're about to say and what they are saying is spoken by the power of God and what they're saying is true. That's what that means. Now let's make some application of that. What a good question that is. Whatever could this mean? I'm learning from that that we need to always look beyond the surface and ask, what does this mean? What is implied? You see, these men in verse 12 could have said, you know what, this is interesting. We've been to many Pentecosts before, and we've never been to one where we saw these men speak in other tongues. This will be an interesting story to tell, and they forget about what it means. They wanted to know, what does this imply? What does this suggest? What's the meaning of this? What explanation can be given of this? We need to be asking the very same question. You see, that's part of meditation. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 15. Paul told Timothy that he was to give some attention unto reading. And then notice at verse 15 he said, meditate on these things. You know what it means to meditate? Meditate doesn't involve merely sitting down and I'm going to read a few verses. We'll say more about that later in our study. But meditation means you take the verses that you've read, some part of the revelation of God, and then you mull that over in your mind and you think about that and you think about the implication of that, what it means and how it applies. Do you meditate? Do you ever take a principle of truth and meditate upon it? And maybe as you're going out to do something, maybe you're going out for a walk, or maybe you're going to exercise, or maybe you're going out for a drive, and before you do that, you get a passage of Scripture in your mind, and you meditate now for a while, what meaning is behind that? What's the point of that? What am I to learn? How am I to apply that to my life? You see, we ought to be asking the question, whatever could this mean? We need to be asking, how does this apply to me? How do do I fit this principle into my life? Whatever could this mean? You see, we need to ask that question when we know the truth has been taught. We're listening to someone teach the truth and we can read in the scriptures and we know exactly that is the truth that has been presented. I need to ask the question, whatever could this mean? What implications of that? How, how, How do we then carry that even further? What does that imply? We need to ask that same question when the doctrine of men has been taught. When I hear something that I think, you know what, that doesn't really ring true to the Scriptures. And maybe it's just a vague principle he has taught. It might have an application to something that's going to lead to an era that I don't want to go there. And so I need to be asking questions, what could that mean? What is the implication of that? How far can we carry that principle? 
What a good question to ask. Whatever could this mean? Here's a second question found here in the same text. Let's look at verse 37. The question this time was, what shall we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now let's talk about the context here. In the context is the sermon about Christ on the day of Pentecost. The sermon begins at verse 22 and continues through verse 36, and it's all about the resurrection of Christ. How that he is now both Lord and Christ. He's been raised from the dead, providing evidence thereof. So here's what I'm learning from that sermon. There is evidence of who he is. Not just a sermon about Christ as a good man. He was an interesting historical character. But here is evidence that indeed he claims to be the Son of God, and he indeed was. Now verse 23 and verse 36 suggest that the hearers were convicted of their sin. Verse 23 begins in the sermon saying that you took by your lawless hands crucified and you have slain the Christ. Verse 36 said that you now know that Jesus is now both Lord and Christ. So I'm learning from that that they were convicted of their sin. So here is an audience made aware we're sinners. They've just heard about who Christ is. Now notice verse 37, the message they heard cut them to the heart. In other words, they weren't just slightly bothered. They were cut deep to the heart by the message they heard. So now, verse 37, they ask, Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now hold your finger there, and let's turn over to Acts chapter 16. And the reason I say Acts chapter 16 is because that same question, in essence, not worded exactly, but basically the same question, was asked by the jailer in Acts 16. And that is, he came in after the earthquake and asked Paul and Silas, what, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Basically, that's the same question, isn't it? What shall we do? What shall I do to be saved? Now, let's see what the answer to the question was. As we look at the answer in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, going back to our text, hold her finger at Acts 16, we're coming back to it. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, the answer was, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins. You want to know what you shall do? I've already told you to believe, verse 36. Now repent and be baptized. And verse 41 said, They that gladly received the word were baptized. Now flip back over to Acts chapter 16. This man was told to believe. He said in verse 31, Notice the question in verse 31, believe on the Lord. He, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved with all of your house. So the answer was that you need to believe on the Lord. Verse 33 says that he indeed was baptized that very same hour of the night. I want you to notice now some application of that question. What an important question this is. What that implies is there are conditions of salvation that have been laid down. If there are no conditions of salvation, the question is useless to ask men and brethren, what shall we do? You don't have to do a thing. What must I do to be saved? You don't have to do a thing. That implies there are conditions laid down. Salvation is conditional. That's the most important question you could ask. Can you think of a more important question to ask? What must I do in order to be saved? Have you been asking that question? You see, if you're not a Christian, you need to be asking, what must I do to be saved? Are you asking that question? What do I have to do to go to heaven? What do I have to do to receive the remission of sins? 
Or if you're a child of God, the question needs to be, what do I need to do that I might stay in a saved relationship? If I've fallen out of grace with the Lord, what must I do in order to get back in grace with the Lord? The most important question you could ask. You see, in both cases, in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 16, there was an immediate response which suggested urgency. Tells me something of the importance of the question. Are you asking that question, what must I do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's a good question, isn't it? It's an important question. Here's a third question. Acts chapter 4. Let's go over a couple of chapters. By what power or by what name have you done this? By what power... Or by what name have you done this? This is an interesting question. So let's put it in its context and see what the context has to say. Let's back up to chapter 3. Because it is in chapter 3 where we read the story of the healing of the lame man, verses 1 through 11. Then that is followed by a sermon on Christ. And the message is in chapter 3 and in verse 16, by his name, that is the name of Christ, through faith in his name has this man, uh, he's made this man strong whom you see and know. Now what's his point? Go further at verse 16. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now there was the healing of the lame man, then there is this sermon about Christ, and it is through this resurrected Christ that we were able to heal that lame man and make him whole. Now then let's go further. Peter and John in chapter 4 were arrested. Now there's a reason for that arrest. We'll come to that in a moment. They were arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin council. Now as they're taken before the Sanhedrin council, look at verse 7. They were asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Done what? Well, that must have included the miracle that had been performed because the answer focuses on the miracle. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he has been made well? In other words, their answer focused on the miracle. So by what power or by what authority or by what name have you done this was including the miracle, but it must have included the preaching of the resurrection of Christ. Because that was the reason, verses 2 and 3, that they laid hands on them and put them into custody. So there are two matters that are offensive. One, you healed a man, a performed a miracle, and secondly, you claimed it was possible by the resurrected Christ. We don't like that preaching and we don't like this miracle. And so answer the question now for us, by what power, look at verse 7, you might underline, by what power or by what name have you done this? Good question, isn't it? Let's see what the answer was. Let's look at the answer. The miracle, verse 9, question at verse 7, the miracle was possible by the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 9 beginning. We've already read. If we this day are judged for this good deed done to this helpless man, by what means he was made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Now what was your question? It was... By what power, by what name? I'll tell you by what power. It was by the power of the resurrected Christ. They go further to make application. They had not asked about salvation. But while you want to talk about authority, let me tell you something about the authority of Christ. Look at verse 11 and 12. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, 
which has become the chief cornerstone. There is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name. You want to talk about name? Let's talk about name. There is no other authority by which men could be saved than that which, uh, than, than the name of Christ. So what's his point? You want to talk about authority? Let's talk about authority of salvation, and that comes through Christ. That was the answer they gave. Now notice verses 17 through 30. Because it was the answer of the resurrected Christ, that caused them to have this boldness beginning at verse 17 so that when they would be asked by uh, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge for we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. The boldness is implied later as we come to verse 31. Here's the point. The point is we are now bold to proclaim this message when you ask this question, by what name or by what power have you done this? Let's make some application of that question. It's a good question, isn't it? By what power, by what name have you done this? Perhaps we need to learn from verse 7 that to act in one's name is to act by their authority. And I cite Colossians chapter 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of Christ. This would be a good time to go over to Colossians 3, 17 and make a note that Acts 4, 17 is your commentary on that. Because what does it mean to do something in the name of another? Acts 4 means, tells us, by one's power or their name. In other words, who authorized all of this? That's the question that's being asked. So I'm learning from looking at this question. To act in one's name is to act by their authority. To act in the name of Christ, to pray in His name, to function in His name, to teach in His name is by His authority. That's what it means to act in the name of another. Here's another lesson I'm learning from this. As the apostles did, we need to be prepared to answer the question concerning authority of doctrine and practice. We need to be ready always to give an answer, 1 Peter 3.15. So that when someone says, well, where, where is the Bible authority to have the Lord's Supper every Sunday? You need to be prepared to give an answer for that. Or someone said, where is the Bible authority for the church to preach the gospel and send money to preachers? Or maybe to send a preacher out to preach. Or where is the authority for singing? Where is the authority for whatever they might begin to ask? Be prepared to give your answer for that. The apostles did. And furthermore, we need to be asking that question of other people. Where is the Bible authority for your doctrine? Where is the Bible authority for your practice? That was asked in Acts chapter 4. By what power, by what name have you done this? Here's another question, number 4. Chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, the question was, why has Satan filled your heart? There was actually a second question, and actually a third, and actually a fourth question in this context. We'll see all four of them in just a moment. But here was the second question, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? That's a good question. Why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 4 to set the context. What's going on and what caused this question to be posed? Let's go to Acts chapter 4 beginning at verse 32. The disciples, because of the poverty of disciples in Jerusalem, they were selling their goods, many disciples were, selling their lands and their houses and then bringing the money and putting it at the apostles' feet so distribution could be made to needy saints. That's going on in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5 says, Ananias and Sapphira sold land, and they gave money. So notice verse 1. There was a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession. 
Now, that was good that they sold their possession, but I want you to notice something. They kept back a portion for themselves, which was fine within itself. Look at verse 2. And they kept back a portion of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain apart and laid it at the apostles' feet. We see no problem yet. There hasn't been a problem yet. In other words, they sell their land for so much, but they only give a portion into the treasury. Now verse 4, let's drop down. While it remained, was it not your own? And while it was sold, was it not under your own control? In other words, Peter is saying, you could have kept back a portion of the land. Nothing wrong with that. You had full control. That was your money. You could do what you wanted to. You didn't have to give it all. You could only give a portion if you wanted to. Nothing wrong with that. But here was the problem. Verse 3 said they lied and said they'd give it all trying to make a better impression. Look at verse 3. But Peter said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back part of the price for the land for yourself? Now let's get the questions. There's actually four here. In other words, let, let's get the picture. What, what was wrong with the circumstance? Let's put it in a modern day setting. Let's suppose there are some needy saints in real need and you say, You know what? I've, I've got an acre of land that I could sell. It'll bring about 10000 And you sell it for 10000 and suppose instead of giving by check, you need to bring just bundles of coins or cash and, and dump it into the barrel here and so the elders can take that and distribute that. And uh, you say, I want to make the impression I gave it all. And so I come with my water money and say, I'm giving 10000 and you throw it in. But you only gave 8000 You kept two for yourself. Could you have done that? Sure. The problem was lying about it. So let's get the question now beginning at verse, verse 3. Actually, there's four. The first one was, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The second was, notice at verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? The third one was, after it was sold, was it not under your own control? And then the fourth was, why have you conceived this in your heart? So here's what Peter said, Satan filled your heart for you to lie. This was totally an unavoidable circumstance. It could have been avoided. And not unavoidable, but it was an avoidable circumstance. How so? He said, when you sold it, wasn't that still your money? Couldn't you have kept back part of it for yourself? You could. And could you have given a portion and been fine? You could have. Then why did you conceive this thing in your heart? The light of the Holy Spirit. Four powerful questions. Let's see what the answer was. The answer was, he didn't answer he didn't give an answer. Notice what happened. Notice what happened. Look at verse, verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his life. He was struck dead. He didn't give an answer. Didn't have time to answer. He was struck dead because of that, and so was his wife because of that. Now let's make some application. What an important set of questions. Why has Satan filled your heart? Here's what I'm learning from that. When we decide to commit sin, we have allowed Satan to fill our hearts. I don't care what the sin is. When you have a sin of a bad attitude, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? When you have the sin of unforgiveness, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? We decide I'm not going to assemble with the saints. Why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you allowed Satan to fill your hearts? Any sin that we do, we've allowed Satan to fill our hearts. Here's the second thing I learned from that. When we try to hide reality, that's hypocrisy, what makes us think we can escape? 
Look at verse, verse 6. Or verse 4, rather. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but unto God. In other words, what made you think you could come and lie about what you were giving? You thought you were lying to men. And what made you think you weren't lying to God and God, God, God saw that? What made you think you'd escape? Here's something else I'm learning from that. Sin is totally without reason. They could have chosen another option. If they needed a portion for themselves, they could have kept back whatever portion they wanted and said, we're only giving, as per the illustration, we're only giving 5,000, we're keeping five for ourselves. We need that. Nothing wrong with that. So why did you commit the sin when it was totally unavoidable? Or to totally avoidable, I keep saying that. It was totally without reason. Totally without reason. There was another option. Question number five. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. Do you understand what you are reading? Acts 8 and verse 30. The context. This is in the case of the conversion of the eunuch. Begins at verse 26 through verse 40. You are familiar with that context. Here was a man, man of Ethiopia, who was of great authority and the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was riding along. He'd gone to Jerusalem for to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chair and reading from Isaiah the prophet, the text says. Now, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, according to verse 28. And the quotation given in verses 32 to 35 shows he's quoting from or reading from Isaiah chapter 53 itself. Now then, Philip asked him, verse 30, here's the question. Do you understand what you are reading? You understand what you're reading? Now get the picture, here's a man riding along in the chariot, and he's got a scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading that he was led like a sheep before the slaughter, and lamb silent before his shears, and he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away, etc. And Philip says, do you understand that? I know you're reading it, but do you understand what you're reading? Let's see what his answer was. His answer was another question. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? Verse 31. How can I understand that unless someone guides me in that? But then he asked another question. He asked, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? See, I'm having trouble understanding. Is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about some other man? What's he talking about? Look at verse 35. Philip opened his mouth and began at this same scripture and preached Jesus to him. In other words, he explained the text. Now, let's make some application of that. I want to understand from this, there's a difference in reading and understanding. <clears throat> we sometimes read our text and say, well, I've, I've read the text. I've read our lesson for Wednesday night. I've read the three chapters in 1 Kings. Or I've read in 2 Kings, Chronicles. Or I've read from 2 Corinthians 4 for next week. I've read the chapter, but did you understand the chapter? There's a difference in reading and understanding. We, we take great pride in having read long sections. I read four, so many ten, ten chapters today. I read the whole Bible through so many times. Did you understand any section of that? Here's something else I'm learning. There's times that we need guidance, some kind of guidance. Now, let's stop and talk about what that may mean. Some people think, you know what, I can read and I can understand as well as anyone else, and you can. And so therefore, I don't need any guidance. Well, that didn't fit with what 
Ezra was trying to do over in Nehemiah 8. Nor does it fit right here. Here was a man who thought he needed some guidance. What does that mean? He needs somebody to show him what the text means and why it means that. There's a difference in that in someone saying, I need guidance. I want you to tell me what this text is about and I'll accept whatever you say. Whatever the commentary says, I'll accept that because I don't have a clue what it means. I want to look at what someone says about the text. And I'm looking for their explanation of why they think that. Can I be convinced that that's what that text means? Sometimes we need guidance. We may be confused on a text. And someone explains that text and tells me it cannot mean this for these following reasons. I might be convinced. I might not be convinced. Sometimes we need guidance. Furthermore, I'm learning from this. A text is meaningless if we don't know who or what it's about. You think about this unit. He doesn't have a clue whether this is talking about Isaiah or you know about some other man. And if it's another man, he doesn't know who, what man that is. Isaiah 53 becomes meaningless to him. You read a text and you don't have a clue who it's about or what it's about, the text becomes meaningless. Keep reading and studying and looking for help and guidance till you come to an understanding. And here's something else I'm learning or need to ask. Do you try to understand what you read? In other words, you read a text and you say... <clears throat> I'm reading over here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for our study today. Did did you try to understand what it means? Do you try to understand what does it mean by the ministration of death? Or do you just read that and say, I don't have a clue. Nor do I really care what that means. Or do you read with trying to understand the context so I'm coming to an understanding of what 2 Corinthians 3 is all about? Let's go to another question. Question number six. What hinders me from being baptized. Same context right here in Acts chapter 8. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, you know the context. We're talking about the same context of the conversion of the eunuch beginning at verse 26 through verse 40. Verse 35 says he's heard the preaching about Jesus. Now that must have included conditions and you say, how do you know? How do you know? What makes you think it included conditions? Because he asked about meeting one of the conditions at verse 36 and 37. It must have included baptism as being one of those. And you say, how do you know? Because when he came to water, he wanted to know, could he be baptized? What brought that up? Only thing we see in the context, there was preaching about Jesus, verse 35. So now let's go to verse 36. When he saw water, he said, what hinders me from being baptized? Good question, isn't it? Let's see what the answer was. The answer that Philip gave was, if you believe, you may be baptized. Look at verse 37. If you believe with all your heart, you may. In other words, there may be a possible obstacle. There may be a possible hindrance. So here's what I want to know. Do you believe Jesus to be the Christ? So he confessed his faith, verse 37, saying he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 38 says they both went down into the water and he baptized him. That was the answer to the question. Let's make some application. What a powerful question. What hinders me? What that tells me is there's a possible, it's possible to have a legitimate hindrance. Someone said, I want to be baptized. Am I ready to baptize them? No, no, no. I want to ask them something. I want to ask them if they believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Otherwise, their baptism doesn't do any good. Had a man ask me one time, what must I do to be saved? And I told him what to do. And then when we got through with all that, he said, I don't even believe there is a God. Was I ready to baptize them? No. 
because he's lacking something very important before he's baptized, it may be they haven't repented and won't repent. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. There is no remission of sins if there's not repentance that precedes baptism. I've had people to tell me that I'm living in adultery and I'm going to stay in that adulterous relationship, but I want you to baptize me. And my answer is, I'm not going to baptize you. Someone else may, but I'm not going to do it. I'll refuse. Why? Because there, there's something that's hindering you. You haven't done what's necessary in order to be baptized. There may be a legitimate hindrance. So here's a good question to ask. What hinders you from being baptized? For some, it may be some sin they're not ready to quit. Is that keeping you from being baptized? Some, it may be the fear of what friends or family might say. I would be baptized, but if I did that, and that acknowledges then that some of my family might be wrong, and I don't want to acknowledge that, and I don't want to bear that grief, so I'm not going to be baptized. What hinders you from being baptized? What is it? Fear of family? Fear of reaction from family? Fear of reaction from friends? Is it that you're wanting a better time? When, it, when it's a better time, it's just not real convenient right now. Or is it that you're afraid you can't hold out and be faithful? Maybe that's the idea, that I'm not sure I can, can endure. I'm just not sure I can do that, and so I'm waiting till I think I can endure, then I'll be baptized. What hinders you from being baptized? Good question, isn't it? Here's question number seven. Why are you persecuting me? This is in Acts chapter 9. Go to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Why are you persecuting me? Here's the context. Saul, according to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, we'll take a quick reference to all of those, was persecuting the church. We're introduced to him in Acts chapter 7, and in verse 58, here is a man named Saul, according to verse 58, held the coat for those that stoned Stephen. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time persecution arose. I notice at verse 3, Saul made havoc of the church, entering in every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Go to chapter 9 now, verse 1. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. He's persecuting the church. Verse 2 of Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus with permission from the high priest to go grab some Christians and persecute them. Verse 4 says, the Lord appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now what we've just painted was a picture. He's persecuting the church. He's making havoc of the church. He's doing something to men and to women. But the Lord said to him, why are you persecuting me? Here's, what, here's something we're learning. What he was doing to the church is what he was doing to Christ. You see, every time you put one in prison, you're doing that to me. Every time you murder one, you're trying to murder me. Whatever you're doing to my people, you're doing to me. Now let's see what the answer to that was. That was the question. His first response and answer to that was, Who are you, Lord? Verse 5. What I'm learning from that, he did not fully understand or realize at that point who the Lord was. He came later to understand who the Lord was and came later to understand that what I'm doing to the people of the Lord, I'm doing to the Lord himself. But he didn't fully understand that at this point. Now let's make some application. Why are you persecuting me? Here's what I'm learning from that. That what we do to God's people, we do to the Lord. That whatever I do to God's people, I'm doing to the Lord. So that poses a good question. We might ask, why do you criticize me? That is, the Lord may ask you that question. 
What if the Lord's thundered out of heaven and asked you, why do you criticize me? And you say, well, I haven't criticized. Oh, yeah, you have. When you criticize my people, you are criticizing me, the Lord said. The Lord might ask you this question, why do you ignore me? You say, I haven't been ignoring you, Lord. And the Lord says, well, when you ignore my people, you're ignoring me. But the Lord asks you, why are you ignoring me? Would the Lord ask you, why do you run me down to the people of the world? Why is it when you go to your friends of the world, you're running me down? Well, I don't do that, Lord. I tell them how much I love you. But you're running my people down when you're with the people of the world. Why are you doing that? The Lord might ask us, why do you spend such little time with me? You may say, well, Lord, I go at church every Sunday. I do spend. No, but you don't spend very much time with my people. Therefore, you're not spending much time with me. The Lord might ask that question. He might ask this one. Why do you want to spend more time with the world than you do with me? Why do you choose to be with your worldly friends more than you choose to be with me? Well, no, I don't do that, Lord. Yeah, you choose to be with the worldly people more than you do with God's people. Or the question might be, why do you oppose me? You say, I don't oppose you, Lord. Well, if I'm opposing the people of God, then I'm opposing the Lord. Why are you persecuting me? Question number eight. Acts 9 and verse 6, same context now. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Powerful question in it. See, the Lord had appeared to Saul, verses 1 to 9. Verse 9, verse 5, rather, Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? Verse 5. Verse 5, he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then Saul asked this question. Look at verse 6. Lord, what do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? Well, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Then he said, well, what do you want me to do? Let's see what the answer was. Stay in that same context and see what the answer was. The answer was, verse 6, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. You want to know what to do? You go to the city and it's going to be told you what you're going to do. And he waited in the city in Acts chapter 22, a parallel account, and a an knight came to him and told him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now the Lord's told him what to do. Lord, what do you want me to do? And a an came to him and told him what he wanted him to do. And he did exactly what the Lord said. Now, let's make some application of that. You see, we ought to be asking what the Lord wants us to do. Should that be the same question we're asking? Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And the answer is going to be found in the Word of God, just like it was with Saul of Tarsus. You see, it was Ananias, the preacher of God, who came to him and revealed him the Word of God that he learned what he needed to do. The Lord didn't tell him on the road what to do. The Lord told him to go in the city and it'd be told him what to do. Don't wait for the Lord to thunder out of heaven some kind of mysterious message to you. The Lord has already told you what to do. Just look to His Word and ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Furthermore, we need to be asking this question, Lord, what do you want me to do in order to be saved? What do you want me to do to be saved? And I'll do whatever you tell me. Lord, what do you want me to do to build my faith? I know I need to build my faith. You tell me in your word, and I'll let me look at the word, and I want to do whatever you want me to do to build and strengthen my faith. Lord, what do you want me to do in order to worship? Lord, what do you want me to do for my family? What do you want me to do for my neighbor, for the lost? What do you want me to do? One more question, and the lesson is yours. Here's number nine. 
Go to Acts 19 in verse 3. In Acts chapter 19 in verse 3, the question was, into what were you baptized? Into what were you baptized? What on earth is that question about? Well, this is Paul on his third missionary journey, according to verse 1 of Acts chapter 19. He came to Ephesus. When Paul came to Ephesus on this third journey, he asked the disciples, verse 2, if they'd received the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says, or verse 2 says, the disciples didn't know anything about it. We did not so much as know if there is a Holy Spirit. Didn't know much about that. So we asked them this question, verse 3. Are you reading with me at verse 3? Into then what were you baptized? You don't know anything much about the Holy Spirit. Then into what were you baptized then? Let's see what the answer was. Their answer was into John's baptism. See, we were baptized under, the, under John's baptism. That's what we were. We were baptized under the Great Commission. See, the baptism of John was not the same as the baptism of the Great Commission. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then Paul said, John and be baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ. Those who were baptized under John later believed on Christ. The baptism of the Great Commission, you believe on Christ, and then you're baptized. That's one basic difference. He said it's not the same. Those are not the same. So verse 5, they were then were baptized in the name of the Lord. They'd already been baptized under John, but they're now baptized in the name of Christ or by the authority of Christ or by the baptism that we find in the Great Commission. Let's make some application of that now. Here's what I'm learning from that, that all baptisms are not the same. How so? Well, some think that if baptism is essential, you talk to your friend and, and uh, they say, well, you, I, I'm, I'm beginning to see baptism is essential. I've got that. But you see, I was baptized as an infant or I was baptized years ago in this denomination or that denomination. So if baptism is essential, then my baptism is okay. So if they've been baptized in any way, they should be fine. But baptism must have the right elements. You see, there's baptism has to have the right person who is a believer, a penitent believer. It must have the right action, it's immersion. It must have the right authority, which is Christ. It must have the right purpose for the remission of sins, and it must be in the right direction, putting us into one body. If someone is baptized, for example, by the wrong action, that's not the right baptism. Or if someone is baptized by the wrong authority, by the authority of the Pope or the church vote, then that's not the right baptism. If it's the wrong person, an infant, for example, or the wrong purpose as an outward sign of an inward grace, or into a denomination, the wrong direction, it's not the one baptism of Ephesians 4. And that's what I learned from Acts chapter 19. Now let's make some application. All baptisms are not the same. But the question is, into what then were you baptized? Let's go back to our text at verse 3. The question wasn't, what kind of baptism did you have, but into what were you baptized? Were you baptized into a denomination? Well, if you're baptized into a denomination, you weren't baptized into the one body of Ephesians 4. Can't have it both ways. Into what were you baptized? Were you baptized into Christ? Were you baptized for the remission of sins? If so, then why do we continue in sin? That was the question in Romans 6. And why, why were you, into what were you baptized? Well, I was baptized into the forgiveness of sins. Is what I was. Well, then why are you continuing in sin? 
Into what were you baptized? Were you baptized into salvation? You say, oh yeah, that's what I was baptized. Then why do you talk like those who are not baptized or saved? Perhaps you have friends that haven't been baptized into Christ. And you speak of them as if they're saved people. Into what were you baptized? You say, well, I was baptized into salvation. Well, then why do you speak of those who haven't been baptized as if they're saved? Into what were you baptized? And you say, I was baptized into being a Christian. Then why do you talk like those, they're good Christian people who are not members of the church? Listen to me carefully. Quite often I hear members of the church talk about their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers. They're good Christian people. They are. Where they, oh no, they don't go to church anywhere. Or they go to this denomination or that denomination. Or maybe they don't even go, but they have some religious affiliation. But they haven't been baptized for the remission of sins into the body of Christ. Why do you speak of them as if they're good Christian people if you were baptized for the remission of sins and you were baptized in becoming a Christian? And they haven't been. Why do you speak that way? Good question, isn't it? Into what were you baptized? Well, that's just a sampling of many questions. That's only mine of many questions found in the book of Acts. Questions are a powerful way to arrive at truth. There are a number that were asked in the book of Acts. What were they? Well, we won't mention everyone again, but whatever could this mean? Or what shall we do? Or why has Satan filled your heart? Or what hinders me from being baptized? Do you understand what you're reading? Or into what were you baptized? Or what do you want me to do? Perhaps you need to be asking this morning the question, what must I do to be saved? Or men and brethren, what shall we do? Or, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you'll find the answer revealed in the Scripture. You're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?